on the ground, people don't really understand the law, but they really understand the customary law and what the religious say. I'm Gordon Peake, the host of Memorandum of Understanding from the Development Policy Centre, a new podcast series that peers behind the bureaucratic curtain to tell the stories of the people, policies and politics of international aid. Before we begin, please be aware that this episode does contain descriptions of sexual violence. A few years ago, I visited some of the sites of a long-running law and justice project in Papua New Guinea. We went to judges' chambers, we went to some of the empty clumps of ground which serve as the sitting place for village courts. We went to family and sexual violence units of the police. And we also visited lots of government offices. And I remember in each of the government offices that we visited, you would notice on the shelf these thick gender and social inclusion handbooks, which are ubiquitous features of development programs or of technical assistance programs in PNG and elsewhere. But very few of these documents, very few of these handbooks showed signs of having been thumbed through particularly religiously. But of all the places that we went to, the one that will stay the longest in my memory is a family support center in Papua New Guinea's second city of Leh. The center is part of a referral network of support to survivors of gender-based violence. It is an Australian-funded project, and we were told that it was a characteristically busy day when we visited. There were 10 to 15 women waiting outside and double that number sitting within. The woman at the reception desk was writing case notes slowly but awkwardly with her left hand. I too am left-handed, and it made me recall the old admonition that To write with the left hand was the work of the devil. But this woman had no choice. Her right hand had been chopped off years previously in a violent attack. But our trip to Leh was no counsel of despair. Instead, it was actually really encouraging. During the visit, we met another woman who spoke about the course that she was facilitating, centering on male behavior change. The participants at the course were violent perpetrators. Some were from the police and others from the correctional service. And the course content was a hybrid. It was a splice of a respectful relationships course together with passages from the Bible. The resulting change in behavior, I was told, was nothing short of Damascene. The encounter merited only a paragraph in the final report, but I often think of the conversation that I had, and this sense that by using religious text appeared at face value to be every bit as effective, and maybe more so than the quote-unquote conventional approaches which Australian aid programs were taking. We wanted to do an episode on religion and development, and we found that this course that I learned about in Lay was not an outlier. In Indonesia, in Solomon Islands, in remote indigenous communities in Australia, there are others who are using religious texts talking and working with religious leaders in order to combat the very problems that religious institutions play their part in perpetuating. That's because faith is deeply twined into the cultural fabric of all of Australia's neighbours. 
whether that be Christianity or Islam. 95% of Papua New Guineans identify themselves as Christian, and numbers are similar elsewhere in the Pacific. Rates of religiosity are high in Indonesia too. But Australia is very different in terms of religious affiliation, the extent to which religion is embodied or inscribed into everyday life. And we found it interesting when we told people we were planning an episode on religion that the reaction was one of squeamishness, uncertainty. Because unlike enthusiasm for a zesty food project or tales of an aid memoir, the topic of religion appeared to be burdened even more so than talking about sex or politics as being a taboo topic. But that is, in many ways, why mentioning it we must. This is a memorandum of understanding on religion, a 30-minute pilgrimage to understand the role of faith and customs in communities and why it is front and centre in many development efforts. You'll hear from five speakers who are using texts associated by many with colonialism and patriarchy in order to try to achieve closer gender equality and a reduction in violence. We begin in Indonesia, a place where culture and religion are inextricable, and we go to the noisy city of Medan and meet Dina Lum Ban Tobing, the co-founder of Pesada, an NGO that works with ethnic minority women in rural and urban poor areas of the island of Sumatra. So in Nias, uh, one a girl raped by his uncle, but the customary uh, leaders and religious leaders, they don't understand the, the terminology of incest and rape. For them, it's just because this girl doesn't know how to control her sexual desire. So uh, the one who really blame is the girl. And then the decision of all of the leaders there is this girl has to be married with someone. It's a big sin if she doesn't marry. And as Christians, we can't let our girl doesn't have husband while she has a kid. In Sumatra, pregnancy is a must. In Dina's words, quote, everyone should be happy if you're pregnant and you should be unhappy if you can't get pregnant, end quote. Having heard many stories from women about unwanted pregnancies and unsafe abortions, Dina decided to do something about it, conducting research and advocacy with support from the Australian Aid Programme. Her work focused on women's health, ensuring that women understood what was going on, that it wasn't their fault, and that they maintained an inalienable right to their own body. And Dina found that one of the chief constituencies that they needed to work with in order to gain traction for their work was religious leaders in this part of Sumatra who were Christian. In North Sumatra itself, we found at least two uh, case studies that shows how close and how attached women to the religious leaders' interpretation on Holy Bible. And we realized in Pasada we need to really understand how to read the Holy Bible in women's perspective, I would say in feminist perspective. So we learned, we invited a feminist priest to really help us to understand about the Holy Bible in general, but we had a very serious and that discussion on some verses. I could say that we are a radical Christian, so for me, no problem. 
That's right. That's right. I'm a leader in that issue because I'm so, you know, I, it's, it's a very burning issue. You know, how could a woman control by the patriarchal interpretation of the Holy Bible? Nobody really read Bible with a woman's perspective. So we start with approach the potential champions. That's what we call we really notice which one from the religious leader that we can talk to. It's not always in the sector of the church, but also someone that really influential in the in the church. You know, sometimes people that have a very good idea, even rich people, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah we have a very good contribution in money for the church. It's not a big secret here. We invite them to have a, a small discussion on women's life in Christia and we present the case studies we found. We have a forum, we call it multi-stakeholder forum. It consists of religious leaders, customary leaders, or the representative of women groups, actually our best cadres, and also the local government high-level official that come from health department. So the health department that understand the state law, the customary law need to be to have a good dialogue with the religious leader and women to listen from them. That's what we did actually with the religious leaders because they don't really understand the law. They only understand the Holy Bible. It's come from many, many centuries ago and nobody really knows the truth of that even. So we work with pastors, and it really works. For Dina, this collaboration with the church has opened up channels of communication that previously had been cut off. So now, if they have serious cases of sexual violence, there are mechanisms by which she can talk to pastors and ensure a forced marriage does not take place. In the early years of the Suharto regime, Indonesia introduced what was at the time considered to be progressive legislation on child marriage. But in the rush to change, Islamic groups were often left out of the conversation. And so, like all of us who get changes foisted upon us without consultation, they became resentful. They became blockers. I'd like to introduce you to Elias Marcos, who heads up another NGO, Rumah Kitab, that fights for the rights of marginalized people in Indonesia who are discriminated against by gender-biased religious views. Lias began her career as a secular feminist activist, but came to realize how important it was to approach advocacy from a Quranic perspective. Before the Beijing conference, uh, there was an issue of reproductive rights. At that time, there is almost no room for women to choose their own family planning uh, method, for example. There is no room for us to even questioning about that method. But uh, because New Order, the Suharto regime, pushed this issue as a political agenda in development, they didn't give room for a, a fundamentalist who questioning about family planning. They were asking about this, whether it is halal or not, whether there was the agenda behind the program to reduce the number of Muslim families, something like that. 
we did research about the acceptance of family planning among the Muslim community in urban area. And we realized so many young couples, they uh, were thinking about the Muslim fundamentalist idea to have uh, as many as possible the children. For example, the women among them, they were like obsessed with uh, idea that they want to have a jindi. Jindi means the soldier for them to do jihad. And then from this idea, they know that for women, they can get the access to the heaven. Ibu Tri Hastuti is the secretary of Aisha, an Islamic organization founded over 100 years ago in Indonesia to address social issues that the state did not, in particular issues of gender inequality. For us who have been working for over 100 years to promote moderate religious values, for example that men and women are equal, to suddenly be faced with a debate in the discourse with arguments that women should return to their home, that women should not have rights over their bodies and their reproductive health, or that women are made part of polygamous marriages or unregistered marriages, religion has to be able to answer these problems. Why? Well, because all those issues I mentioned, they are also based in religion, right? But in our opinion, these are incorrect interpretations because religion exists to bring prosperity to all, both men and women. That's what we think. Aisha is still a religious organization, but it too uses the language of the Quran to argue both against antediluvian interpretations of gender roles for gender equality and also to encourage women to make full avail of the health services that are open to them. Islam is here to bring prosperity for all. Even for issues such as FGM, or female genital mutilation, we believe that that is a form of violence. And in fact, it is not recommended in Islam. Male circumcision is, but there is no recommendation for FGM. And that, in fact, is a form of violence. So we say, don't do it. That's why religion with progressive values will answer problems regarding the right to equality for both men and women. For example, now there are many cases of breast cancer and cervical cancer. Many women don't want to do EFA tests or pap smears. Why? It's because they are embarrassed that their aurat or their body will be seen by other people who are not their relations. We have begun spreading the word that in Islam, that is permitted. It's not a problem if our aurat is seen by health workers because it is to save our lives. Religion for the Indonesian people is a belief system that guides our lives. The way many of our people behave and think and act and make decisions, that is all greatly influenced by religious principles. And in speaking the language of custom and religion, these three Indonesian women have found a more effective way of communicating than discoursing about human rights, law and feminism. Back in Sumatra, Dina contributed to a pre-existing church practice of pre-marriage counselling, but she used the opportunity to reframe the traditional meanings of husband and wife. 
in every church they have like a pre-marriage counseling that's what they said actually it's like pre-marriage education generally in pre-marriage uh, education it's like do you know your father-in-law birthday do you know you work as wife you know it's so i would say it's silly marriage is not an objective in life it's happy how you will be happy and have a meaningful life marriage is one choice but for the for many uh, religious marriage is a must it's not a choice i really are uh, surprised when the field staff says the priest want to write and want us to co-write like a handout for them to really teach especially the new priest to really think about the gender issues and sexuality etc and to use it when they had a counseling premarriage and we said not only premarriage because not every one of them will be married so we produced the book already in pak pak barat it is a very uh, left out uh, tribe long time ago but now they raised up and they have a very big community in church for me is the one of the best result of the work that we have done because you can see the commitment of the church top management but it's not as if religion works every time as islamic activist lias find in a community in jakarta she was trying to engage religious leaders she was trying to speak using the argo of religion but she was drawing one big blank and so what she did was to use one of the phrases ubiquitous in development these days she pivoted we thought that this is good for us to work together with the religious leader and local leader that is why in almost every area we start from there but when we work in northern jakarta because this area is very pluralistic not only muslim but also the combination is like a miniature indonesia they mm. came from bali from ntt with the very different religions with the muslim and also very poor area this is slums area actually at the time we start with the religious leader after the training we found that there is no reaction from the community when we promote about the child marriage Uh, so then we found that there was the youth group for the local theater called it in Betawi Lenong and we found that they are very pluralistic not only Betawi but from Bali from uh, NTT from Banten from Makassar they are poor male and women and we start talk about the role of this activity yeah So then we invite the teacher on theater to train them about the performance and the substance we give a training about the child marriage mm. and it works because under their knowledge this is their problem two years actually uh, since we started to promote about child marriage now no single zero of child marriage in that area and not afraid or not uh, shy to talk about the child marriage that our strategy we didn't start from the uh, regulation we didn't start from the what islam say what quran said what hadith said no not from there 
not from the status, mm. but we came from the reality first. And from that, we can see the variety. Variety of problem, variety of understanding, variety of something like that. Mm. So from there, we come up with what is the principle then from Islam? What is the principle from the human rights or women's rights? Why we have to support that? What is important for, for girls to have these rights? So the methodology is always the same, contrasting between the text and the reality. In that principle, I, Rumah Kitara, try to make a combination between Islamic teaching and the international component. Why? Because Islamic teaching, in particular fiqih, have limitation in terms of time, no longer new teaching, for example. So we have to shift and we give the platform of the value, the platform of the universal uh, principle. for human rights and uh, women's rights, something like that. One of the themes that I took away from my conversations with Dina, Elias, and Tree was that if one was only looking at formal regulations, laws, and the Indonesian constitution, one was in effect only seeing the tip of the iceberg and not seeing the structures underneath the surface, these vast subterranean fusions of religion and custom that differ from place to place. And while I'm not sure that the analogy of an iceberg is the most climatically opposite for the tropics, I thought I would test it out on a man from another archipelago, Solomon Islands. Uh, Solomon Islands is basically an island as constituted in the laws. But Solomon Islands was never a nation. It was a, just a tribal kind of uh, living. Becoming a nation was basically the, um, it was a colonial construction. But before the pronouncements of, of Solomon Islands, there was no Solomon Islands. And so when the constitution brought everyone together, what that means is that you just cannot go to a constitution and read about the Solomon Islands because, you know, you have disparate, completely different kinds of people who are all living together with um, 70 plus different languages spoken in the, in the country And this is the thing with developmental language. You, you really have to get behind that kind of language to be able to grasp and for development work uh, to be effective and to really touch the heart of the matter is the need to go beyond the formal and the legal uh, structures and infrastructure and documents and all of that and really begin to, to experience what it is. The Reverend Cliff Bird is a former teacher and acting chief executive of the Solomon Islands Superannuation Fund, but he left the life of Mammon 30 years ago to dedicate himself to his faith. Cliff's work weaves together theology with social justice, ecology, and community development. There used to be a time when I could just bluntly say that there was very little, very little appreciation of the centrality of Christianity in the lives of people. for the, you know, players in development. And so the thread of not really grasping, fully grasping the place and the role of faith and uh, Christianity in the totality of life, that still runs through. I can see that and I feel that, I experience that. I remember there was a team 
who went to Malahita and uh, they started talking about uh, human rights, especially women's rights, and they were asked to leave immediately right on the spot. Okay? And then when uh, we started talking about the uh, faith language that uh, amounts to the, the same kind of goal, which is about the women ending violence, there was a whole lot of different reception to that. Uh, we run this workshop with the Presbyterian Church in Vanuatu and uh, we asked them, bring the wives and husbands together, not just the clergy, bring the clergy spouses. And so we had a number of them who brought their wives. It was on role modeling. How can husbands and wives model a loving, respectful, mutual kind of relationship? And so we went through that whole week. And then uh, on the second uh, last day, we asked some of them to uh, share their experiences. And uh, one of the women stood up and said, I'll tell you my experience. Early in the morning, the husband woke up his wife and then said, I want you to come with me. And the wife said, where are we going? Just follow me. So they went out and the husband cooked the breakfast set the table, and then he asked the wife, I want you to sit opposite me. And the wife was so surprised uh, that the husband was sitting there. And then the husband said, I just want to say that I have listened. I have listened and I have heard. I have treated you like a servant for 37 years. That's how long they were in the marriage and in the ministry. I have not been kind to you. I have basically uh, said, do this, do that. And now I want to tell you, it's going to be very different from here. I'm going to make every effort. I've heard what the Reverend Dr. Cliff and the Sierra said, and I'm going to follow that. I mean, that story that you told about the man and his wife for 37 years it's a wonderful story, but it probably doesn't fit into a tick box. And it says, oh, it's just one man. Did you train 10 men? And then it gets into a numbers game. Whereas I'm sure that man's life has transformed. Yeah. And, and so that's a struggle. A struggle also is on the numerical basis of the success stories. <laughs> Higher numbers are success stories. Uh, you know, it, it's very quantitative Based. And the qualitative uh, results are not really taken into serious consideration. And I suppose that's a difference in the value system in Pacific Island countries. The, the way that life is valued or relationships are valued or things are valued is quite different. I mean, a, a good example of that is the GDP, you know. Honestly, I see, I find GDP a pretty useless kind of measure when it comes to Pacific Islands because we don't measure a person's well-being by using that. We have a very broad range kind of valuing system. The use of rational statistics and frameworks have their limits, especially when it comes to spiritual value systems. Indigenous Australia is no exception. Aboriginal people have to understand all worldviews through a spiritual lens. We're not a compartmentalised box type people. 
we don't you know have a this is our secular life this is our sacred life this is our religious life things flow in and out and have porous boundaries and i think putting things in box and categorizing is a um, extension of modernity more than humanity all humans have a sacred space but it doesn't necessarily include a uh, a formal religion or even a, a concept of god but i think all people have uh, a desire to find things that are transcendent and those bigger set of meta values that give our lives meaning and uh, within the christian faith we call that god from an aboriginal perspective we just call that thing sacred grant polson is a birigaba and bunjilung man who works as a faith and development advisor for the Australian First Nations program in World Vision Australia, and he is spearheading an approach in Indigenous Australian communities called Channels of Hope. The program has many ancestries, some from the Pacific, some from South Africa, and it works with an underused, hitherto dormant part of community development, the church. There are certainly amongst the Indigenous community those who are certainly anti-church and um, see it as a colonial tool, but at the coalface, there's also a critical mass of community members that have taken this message and, uh, for want of a better word, adopted it into uh, Aboriginal society and Aboriginalised their introduced spirituality through the Christian faiths. And I think primarily one of the reasons why that happened is not so much passive colonialism, but a sacred people finding the sacred currency out of the new arrivals and then um, finding a way to include that into the worldview. So, you know, we're, we're a spiritual people and we've got these um, new mob that have turned up on our doorstep. And one of the ways we trade and share and connect us is through things that are spiritual. And so I guess it's conceivable that we would have taken this Christian faith and made sense of it in a way that holds all things together, including our Aboriginality. Just like Cliff and Solomon Islands and Dina, Leas and Tree in Indonesia, Grant found that by speaking in the vernaculars of religion and culture, it was much more effective than speaking in kind of the neo-managerial language of development about corporate plans, about m and &E frameworks, working groups, theories of action, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do we work without just, you know, being another white Toyota dreaming that comes into community, does what they need and then drives out again? We want to be able to uh, be accessible, but also be something that helps and that's wanted rather than something that's imposed. And when we went to the remote communities, a lot of those concepts about differentiating and that was very Western and we had to alter it a lot for uh, Indigenous but the community understood the Bible. It had been part of their community for a long time through the missions. So we started with the familiar before we went into new territory and we taught it in a way that amplified things that you probably wouldn't have uh, noticed. And look, we've been influenced a lot by feminist theology that have helped us see the text uh, through a non-male lens. It's like having your mum tell you to go back to the cupboard and look for your socks better. And you think, it's not there, mum. I've looked 10 times. <laughs> and she said, did you bend? You think, oh, I've bent. And there, there it is. 
the use of sacred text, the Quran and the Bible, as a means to promote gender equality, is at face value paradoxical? Neither are first and foremost considered equality documents, but Grant is reinterpreting these texts for modern times. They were both penned in particular cultures and times and places and spaces where male dominance and male leadership was the norm. And yet you can find whatever you want to look for, basically, because people can find quite alarming, horrible, um, sectarian concepts through sacred texts if you're looking for it. And there is also places for socially profound ways of doing and being to be discovered with the eyes who want to see it. And what Channels of Hope has helped people do is rediscover texts. I didn't see that. Mm. It was there all the time. Something that was hiding in plain sight and calling us. Texts that have been captured and used by those who want to dominate a particular theology and a particular worldview to get a particular social outcome. It's what happens when our selfish agendas take over. We sometimes want to project those onto the text. I remember one Bible scholar saying wonderful things in the Bible. I see most of them put there by you and by me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, look, and I'm, I can be guilty of that with my own sets of bias, but um, having an alternate lens to read the text through and reading it from someone else's eyes or from another gender's eyes kind of liberates you to a more 3D faith to a more nuanced, more inclusive concept of your spirituality. Interestingly enough, in the uh, Northern Territory, the particular tribe there, Walbury, saying, yeah, you are, it's true, we kind of can look for the parts of the Bible that we most want to remember. But they're saying, but there's also dreaming stories ancient stories that we tend to forget about, you know, with violence as well. Ancient laws that talk about what doesn't justify violence against women. Uh, so this unexpected impact has been, hey, wait a minute, let's look through an old traditional culture through a different lens. We were sitting there, one old man said, there's an old story that talks about violence being no good, you know, even between men, you know. And all of a sudden, all these non-violent type narratives and laws started popping up, like the importance of the brother-in-law, the bungee, is, is really important in Aboriginal society across the tribes. It's not just in a Central Australian thing. But if that brother-in-law relationship is so sacred, how can you hold that sacred relationship while you're punching your sister? So, you know, we need sacred rationales. We need sacred reasons. We need sacred drivers to live right and do right by each other, by ourselves, by our community. And by the country in which we uh, live because ultimately bad living affects us holistically and rather than try and find ways to help keep dysfunction afloat we've got to provide interventions that call us to our better selves all the time. Religion is a subject that's always going to generate strong opinions, whether they be yay or nay. There's going to be few agnostics on this topic, few likely converts to the other side. But whether one has faith or not, one thing is for sure. For those working in development with religion and custom or issues that cannot be ignored, cannot be marginalized, 
and cannot be just whooshed away. The challenge is how to work effectively with the grain, and we've written a blog for Dev Policy putting together some additional thoughts. I'm Gordon Peake, the producer is Julia Bergen, music is from Luther Knut, and we'd like to thank Kate Walton for the translation. We go to air every fortnight, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to get your feedback, and we'd really appreciate it so much if you could leave us a review or leave us a rating. You can follow us on Twitter, at MOU underscore pod. See you in a couple of weeks.